Good morning. I forgot that I was going to be in, a, in Egypt this morning. Thank you. If you helped out uh, with VBS this week, I'm not going to ask you to stand, but uh, if you would, just give the, the helpers a round of applause for all their hard work. I'm, I'm going to, hopefully we're going to have some kind of video to show you all the fun you missed. We, uh, we breathed in a lot of fumes this last week. The sacrifices we made to paint a couple hippos and cut a couple snakes out. I'm nervous about that snake. He looks really good. I did, I did some of the painting on that. Rachel, Rachel, help me. Is Rachel here? Huh? Rachel did some of the painting with me here on, this, uh, on the snake and the hippos. How do you like those hippos? Huh? 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 All I did was trace the lines. That's all I did really was trace the lines. But man, we have a lot of fun. It is fun to be up here and, and do VBS with, uh, with just other people. You get to know people and you talk about silly things and you laugh, but it's just a lot of fun. Um, if, you, if you are looking for something to do this week around 7 o'clock, we're going to do um, an adult Bible study for uh, adults. It's kind of an adult VBS. Now, our, we won't have an amazing set like this, so there's no hippos in, in our room, but we're going to be uh, across the street in the music suite, and from 7 to 8, we're going to cover the exact same topic that the, the children are covering every night. So if you want to uh, talk about it, if you're not working with, uh, with VBS, and you can still work, we're going to come in at 7. I'll be here at 7, and uh, I, like, I like worshiping with the kids. They, they do an awesome job, and they are, they are out and about when it comes to worship. So we really in, I really enjoy that time. And all of the songs they're singing this year, you, you will know. They're not kiddie versions or anything like that. It's really good, uh, really good music. So you can come in here at 7, and then we'll walk over to the music suite, which is directly across from our church. And from 7 to 8, we'll do an adult Bible study, especially if you're a parent and you want to be able to talk about these, these topics with your child. You know, these are big truths for little hearts. So we want to be able to take those big truths that we're going to learn in our Bible study and then talk about them with our children. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Hebrews 7.23. We're going to be looking at actually Hebrews 7.22 through 26. You know, the song we just sang is an interesting, it's an interesting song to sing right before we go into this particular passage. Kathleen was not aware of the passage I was preaching on this week. And the reason I know that is because I decided it about 6 o'clock last night. So she did not know. But it's interesting because the passage is really about a forever type of person. Really, I, if you read through Hebrews, we're talking about a forever type of priest. Hebrews 7, through 26. Marcia, that's for you. I saw that look. Guys, I watch your looks. If you make looks there, I'm going to call you out every once in a while. Marcia was saying, what passage? But really this passage is about a forever type of priest. I want to define two things as we begin this morning. And I want to ask this question. I want to ask one question and then I want to, I want to give you some definitions. And I want to see if we can work out this entire topic or work out this one single thought into an application for our own personal lives. And the question is this, are you living like a priest? Are you living like a priest? Now, immediately a lot of imagery comes up in your head, probably an image of a black suit with a white little collar right here in the middle. 
You might be thinking of a Catholic priest. Maybe some of you might be thinking of an Old Testament priest. But I want to talk about what a priest really is. And I want to talk about a general concept that is the conclusion of our our belief statement, which is the concept of the priesthood of believers. Let me define for you first what a priest is. You might be surprised to know that a priest is a mediator between two parties. He's a go-between. It's like when you're in high school and you really like that girl and you want to talk to her and you want to date her and you got to get one of her friends to go over and say, hey, Andrew thinks you're cute. He wants to know, yes, no, or maybe, right? And then the go-between comes back and tells you the answer is yes! I'm so excited. No, it's never that. It was always no. Sometimes it may be. But a mediator is just a go-between. But in, in our purposes, a priest is really a religious go-between. And what his main job is doing, is, his main job is, is to reconcile two parties that are at odds with one another. So a priest has this job. He is a mediator between, specifically, God and man. In order that those two parties, God and man, can be reconciled together. That they can have a, a relationship together. You think about the Old Testament. The indication from, or the implication from Genesis 3 is that, they, that Adam and Eve had fellowship with God while they were in the garden and before they had sinned. And once they had sinned, they lost that benefit of fellowship with God. Henceforth, through the covenantal law, relationship and fellowship with God took place at the hands of the priest, the Levites, through the tabernacle and eventually through the temple. That was where God dwelt, and that was where they had their relationship. But no Jew would have been cheeky enough to run up into either the tabernacle or the temple and demand the presence to be or have an audience and be in the presence of God. They had mediators. So a priest is a mediator between two parties, usually between men and God. The priest has access to God that others don't. And he has the ability and the authority to enter into the presence of God through the consecration of his own sins. He has to first atone for his own sins so that he might be holy before God. And he is able to atone for the sins of the people. But how do we then talk about what priesthood of the believers is? This is a concept originally popularized during the Reformation by Martin Luther, and it expresses the believer's direct access to God to offer up spiritual sacrifices without the need of a human priest. So Martin Luther has come, of course, think of the context of the time of the Reformation, and what Martin Luther is reacting against is against the idea or the notion that you and I need to go to a priest to confess our sins or to have any kind of relationship with God. And Martin Luther comes and says, no, no need for a human mediator to go to God. We are our own priest. The question is, how then did we move from needing a priest to now being our own priest? The answer is that Jesus Christ, through his sacrificial death and continual priestly work, has given us the right to be our own priest. In Malcolm Gladwell's book, The Tipping Point, 
He recounts the murder of Kitty Genovese, a woman living in Queens, New York, who was brutally stabbed for 30 minutes while 38 of her neighbors watched in horror but failed to intervene. This is a true story. Initially, the incident became a case for the recrimination and dehumanization of our urban centers. But Gladwell notes that the study of the two, or a specific study of two New York psychologists who conducted a series of experiments to better understand what they were calling the bystander problem, that what really was going on at this time, now there was nothing surprising about a murder in New York during the 60s and 70s. Those of you who were living there during those times would not be shocked to know that someone was murdered there. What was surprising was that 38 witnesses for 30 minutes sat by and did nothing. So, of course, everyone began to explain, well, it must have been that they were protecting their own necks so that they did not want to get involved. But Gladwell notes something more interesting than that. He says that what these two psychologists found out about the bystander problem is this. What they found was that when people are in groups, the responsibility for acting becomes diffused. In other words, what ultimately caused the 38 neighbors to do nothing for Miss Genovese was that all of the witnesses expected someone else to step up and intervene. Everyone was waiting for the next person to be responsible. Someone argued that had it just been one person, Miss Genovese may still be alive. But sometimes this phenomenon happens in the church. When the pastor asks for help from the church, the tendency of people is to expect that others will take care of the problem. Maybe someone else will step up and do that job. Maybe someone else will help support the church financially. Maybe someone else will be present this week for VBS. Maybe someone else will come to Wednesday night Bible studies and Sunday morning worship. Maybe someone else will paint the walls. And so in that sense, it's not really that huge of a deal, but it becomes an eternal problem when we expect one man, or namely a body of leaders of the church, to be the one holy person in the community. This becomes more deleterious when believers expect everyone else in the congregation to live lives of holiness. We have every excuse under the sun for why our sin is justified and condemn every other brother and sister when they sin. We expect others, especially the leaders of the church, to live holy lives while we excuse our own sins by claiming we're not pastors. That's different. This morning, I want to dispel the myth of super-Christians. I want to dispel the idea that pastors or priests are supposed to be something that other Christians are not. This morning, I want to ask you this question. Are you living like a priest? Let's pray. Father, 
Help us to understand our personal responsibility to you. You have made us as leaders and pastors to be the first example of holy living, but not the only example of holy living. We are to be the first, but not the only. All of us now, as Peter tells us, are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and are all now to be offering spiritual sacrifices of worship, good works, and of honoring one another. God, convict us this morning by your Holy Spirit to live like priests. Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn in them there to Hebrews 7.22, and we'll be looking at this passage this morning. I'm going to talk about three points. I want to talk first about our new reality, second about our new right, and third about our new responsibility. Our new reality, our new right, that is R-I-G-H-T, what we have as a right, and then last, our new responsibility. Read with me, if you would, at Hebrews 7.22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. What makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant? Ask that question. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently, that is Christ, because he, that is Christ, continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. I want to talk about a new reality. Point number one is this. Christ is the better priest of a better covenant. Look at what Hebrews 7, 22 through 24 says. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. That means the one responsible the one who has possessed it, the one who is legally responsible. And it says, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Well, what's the other covenant? The other covenant is the works or the covenant of works, the covenant of the law. The old covenant, under the old covenant, the Hebrews were given somewhere along the lines of 600 different commands that they were to follow. There were the 10 major commandments, but then there were other commandments. There were dietary commandments. There were social commandments. There were, uh, there were accounting commandments. There were other commandments, other moral commandments that the Hebrews were given. There were also religious commandments that they were given, and there was a particular group that was given the authority and the right and the ability to be a priest to God. And everyone had to follow this. But the author of Hebrews has picked up on this theme that Jesus is a better priest of a better covenant. A new covenant sealed by his blood. So what then makes Jesus a better priest of a better covenant? First... The Old Covenant was always meant to be a precursor to a better and final covenant. If you have your Bible, quickly look over at Hebrews 8, 7 through 13. Listen to what the author says. The author says this, For if the first covenant, again, the Mosaic Covenant, had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second 
If the original covenant had been without fault, then why all this talk about a new covenant? For he finds fault with them, speaking of Jeremiah, speaking of God as Jeremiah prophesies, for he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. What's the problem with the first covenant? It is not that the first covenant failed because God failed. It's that the first covenant failed because we failed. All of the laws that were given to Israel were commands that everyone had to keep. And what happened time and time and time again was not only that they failed to keep these commands, but that they rejected them. Even when they were keeping the commands, they didn't have the desire to keep the commands. As such, God turned away and said, this covenant because of your sin, because of your iniquity, is not good enough to bring about the righteousness which I require. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on the hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. You see, the new covenant looks for a day when the people of God would not only obey, but would actually want to obey. And so the new covenant that the writer of the book of Hebrews is speaking about is a new reality for you and I. A new reality that means the covenant that God has struck with us has been sealed by the Holy Spirit in us. The commands of God are no longer written on stone tablets. They're written on our minds and in our hearts. Now God is ours not by ethnicity, not by being part of the nation of Israel, but by having received the Holy Spirit. He is called the seal of the new covenant. So we have a new reality going on here. The new covenant brings about a new reality. But the second covenant, or the old covenant, was ultimately incapable of producing the righteousness that God requires, namely a righteousness built by faith, or built by and lived out in faith. Look at what Paul says in Galatians 3.11-13. through 13. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The new covenant is better than the old covenant because instead of receiving it by works, now we receive it by faith. We are now saying to God in our service, we are now your righteousness 
We are now your people, not because we have stone tablets, but because we have Christ. He is our guarantor of a better covenant. Lastly, Jesus is a better priest for the following reasons. So not only is it a better covenant because of faith, but it is also a better covenant because it has a better priest. Number one, because Jesus is God's son. Hebrews 1.3 says, He, that is Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification up for sins, exactly what the priest does, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. The author's explaining the mystery of the Trinity, that in order for Jesus to be, or, or in order for God to be eternally father, he must have an eternal son. God cannot change. It is impossible for God to change. The Bible says he changes not. I am the Lord your God and I change not. So if the father is eternally father, then it requires that he have an eternal son, begotten and not made. Now the high priest is God's son and not men. As we read in our passage this morning, Jesus is the guarantee of a better one because the old priests aren't an everlasting race. They had to have many priests because when one died, they needed someone to take up the next, le the next leg of, the, of their righteousness and of their covenant with God, and that priest would come in and be appointed the next high priest. But Jesus is an everlasting priest because he is God's son. But Jesus is also an everlasting priest. Not only is he God's son, he is an everlasting high priest. In 722 it says, The former priests were many in number. They were, because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds, that is Christ, his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Jesus is a better priest because he is a high priest who can sympathize with suffering. Hebrews 2, 17 through 18 says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers, that is humans, in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Hebrews 4.15 also says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Christ is a better priest because Christ sympathizes with our sufferings. Think about what is at issue here. God has not said, I will appoint someone else or I will, I will offer the sacrifice. God has said, I will not only offer the sacrifice, but I will be the sacrifice in the Son. Christ is a better priest. But Christ is also the perfect sacrifice and the perfect priest. In Hebrews 9, 11 through 14, it says this. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, the tent not made with hands, that is not of his creation, he entered once for all into the holy places that is in heaven, 
not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, then how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serving the living God? Christ is not just a better priest of a better covenant. He is the perfect, perfect priest of now the perfect covenant. This is the new reality that we find ourselves in. From time to time, people will ask me, why have they stopped sacrificing animals? How come, how come we don't sacrifice animals anymore? What, what stopped that? Christ. There is no need to sacrifice animals that could never permanently save you. There is no need to atone or go to, a, go to a priest or to a pastor to confess your sins to have him atone you. Christ has given you a new reality. You are now members of the covenant and are in fellowship with God by what Jesus has procured for you. This is a new reality. But what then has this new reality done for us? Hebrews 7.25 tells us that it has given us a new right. Namely, that Christ has paved the way for us to draw near to God. Look at what 7.25 of Hebrews says. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. But what does the author have in mind when he says those who draw near to God? Now that Christ has become the perfect priest and fulfilled the covenant perfectly, we now have access to draw near to God. Well, what does that mean? First, it means that Christ has offered himself up so that we might enter into the presence of God. We have a new right. As Christians, we have a right to be in the presence of God. Paul says we might approach the throne of grace with what? Boldness, because we have a right. Not that you or I have earned, but what Christ has earned for us. Look at what Hebrews 10, 19 says. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, Earlier, Paul says boldness. Now the author of Hebrews says confidence to enter the holy places. Before, the priest could not enter the most holy place with confidence. He could not walk in apart from first, once a year, first atoning for his own sins and then killing a lamb without blemish and putting the blood before the curtain and on the altar before he ever had any kind of relationship with, Christ, or with, with God. It was a serious matter. And if he didn't follow that seriously, he would lose his life. Worship of God is a serious thing. People say, why do people die when they touch the, the, the Ark of the Covenant? Because God is holy and he will not share his existence with profanity. He is sacred. Sacred. We are profane. But look at what it says. He entered once for all into the holy places. Not by the means, excuse me, 
lost my spot there. By the new and living way opened to us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Full assurance of what? That we have confidence before God. Because our hearts are now sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed pure with water. Last week we spoke about baptism. The reality that baptism speaks and symbolizes is that we are washed clean now and forever. In fact, in the same passage in Hebrews 10, it says Christ has perfected those who are being sanctified. We are perfect in God's eyes through Christ and are yet maturing in holiness. So Christ has offered himself up so that we might enter into the presence of God. Second, when we draw near to God, we offer up spiritual sacrifices of faith and good works. 1 Peter 2.5 says this, so now we, we understand that Christ has, has purchased access to God. Now we are in the presence of God. Now what do we do with this? What do we do with this reality of being in the presence of God? Peter says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We have a new job to do. Now that Christ has given us this, this right to stand in the presence of God, do we stand there with our hands behind our back? Are we like the 38 people in Queens, New York, who is waiting for the next person to do something? Do we look to the pastor to make spiritual sacrifices on our behalf? Or do we see that the holy nation, the royal priesthood, is not just the pastor, but it is all of us? All of us now are to offer to God spiritual sacrifices. Well, what is that? What does that look like? Number one, spiritual sacrifices means good works. means good works. Now that we live in the perpetual presence of God, our life is a perpetual worship in the presence of God through good works. Romans 12.1 says this, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So, spiritual sacrifices to God looks like what? Paul says, like a living sacrifice. In other words, your entire life now in this new reality, you now have the right to offer spiritual sacrifices through holy living. Don't think that Sunday is the day where you offer spiritual sacrifices. You offer spiritual sacrifices when you say no to sin and yes to righteousness moment by moment of every single day. The new reality 
comes with a new right, but it also, and we're going to talk about it in just a moment, comes with a new responsibility. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Salvation did not end when you entered into the holy presence of God. It began. Now you have the right. You see, when the, we're talking about what the, the priest did. So the priest carefully went into the, holies, uh, the holy of holies and first atoned for the sins. And then he had a further responsibility of worship and supplication on behalf of the people. We have a further responsibility now to worship and to live holy lives as living sacrifices of God. Next, prayer. Revelation 8, 3 through 4. Prayer is a spiritual sacrifice. Revelation 8, 3 through 4 says this, And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. We have the right now to offer prayers of spiritual sacrifice to God. To go before God and to make our petitions known. We need no priest between us and God to go and say, God, I am unrighteous. Forgive me. We don't need to whisper that into the ear in a dark closet of another man who is just as wicked, if not more, than you. Christ has done it already. Through prayer, we are our priest. Finally, through humility and utter dependence upon God, we offer spiritual sacrifices. Look at what Psalms 51, 17 says. David says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. David says, The driving force of my worship is, is your delight, God. What will you delight? What will be your delight in me? And he says, If animals please you, I'd do it. I'd slay every animal we had in Israel. If you delighted in it. But David says, that's not what delights you, God. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. What is he saying? He is saying what pleases God, what is a spiritual sacrifice, what is music to God's ears is saying, I am broken with you before you. You must cleanse me. God is a father. You are utterly dependent upon him. And when you offer up your, in humility, your need for him, your need for his righteousness, your need for his spirit to place his commands on your heart to make you a new creation in Christ and to make all the old things pass away. When you go to him and you say in agreement with God, I am what you say I am, God. I am sinful. I have cursed your name. I have run away from you. Now you are pleasing to God. You know, sometimes People say, well, 
I'll say, when are you going to come to church? Come and visit with us. Well, I've got to get some things out of my life first. I've got I to get holy. You know, I'm not, I, got, I'm still, I still like drugs, or I still like chasing women, or I still like alcohol. I'm not ready to, to make that commitment. Make the commitment to what? The commitment is to come in as the whoremonger, the drug addict, the alcohol, the alcoholic, and to say, God, I'm unworthy. Is there anything you can do for me? Two men went down to the temple. One was a Pharisee. The other was a tax collector. The Pharisee prayed, thank you, God, that I'm not like the tax collector. The tax collector said, be merciful upon me, a sinner. And one went home justified and the other didn't. Which one? Give you one guess which one went home justified. The contrite heart wins. Come into this assembly every Sunday. Go before God every day with a contrite heart saying, God, you've earned everything for me. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. You'll not be pleased with the works of our hands, God. That doesn't impress you. You're not impressed by me. What delights you? My broken spirit. My broken and contrite heart. A real, contrite means a real sense. A real sense of brokenness before God. So the question I ask you then is, since we have this new reality, a new reality purchased by Christ, a new right to go before God and offer spiritual sacrifices, what about our new responsibility? I ask you this question. Are you living as a priest? What if today's message has challenged you? If Christ is the only priest, the only mediator, then how now are you being a good steward of your access as you stand in the presence of God in the most holy place? How are you being a good steward right now of the presence of of your, of your new reality of standing in the presence before God. Are you doubting God's presence in your life? Jesus says you have access to him. When that doctor calls and gives you that terrible news, do you understand that you have the potential, the right to go before God and say, God, you are more powerful than this. Are you being responsible for your addictions, for your sins, to say, God, right now I love this more than I love you. Wrought in me a new heart that desires righteousness over sin. Is your corporate worship of God lackluster? When you worship with brothers and sisters, do you really feel, do you really sense that you collectively as one body stand before God? You are really in his presence, really singing and praising him in songs of spiritual sacrifice? Do you really sense that? Do you view your entire life as worship, offering spiritual gifts to God moment by moment? by conforming and by offering your life, your body as a living sacrifice? How's your prayer life? Do you care about the things God cares about and pray for what God cares about? 
Do you often think about the reality of sitting in the Holy of Holies in heaven as you pray? I can tell you, if you did, you and I wouldn't be falling asleep at night when we pray. How could anyone fall asleep in the presence of God? Think about this. Most of us are practicing the ritual of prayer and not the new reality, the new right to stand before the throne of God and ask the author of heaven and earth for anything. I often think, what would I ask this famous person if I met him? What would I ask this person if I had the opportunity to meet him? What would be the, the words that come out of my mouth? You know, we, we, we get starstruck. You ever seen a star? You get starstruck. It's, it's like, oh my gosh, that's really, that's really Dwayne Wade standing in front of me. Oh my gosh. And yet you go before the creator of the heavens and the earth every day and there's no awe? As good a basketball as Dwayne Wade is, God gave him every ability and yet we treat prayer and discourse with God as if it's nothing. This is a new responsibility we have. A new reality, a new right that gives us a new responsibility to see ourselves in the presence of God and say, you can do anything. You can fill every gap in these pews. An $80,000 debt, God, you can bring to us a dying father you can make alive. And I can ask you and you can do it. This is a new responsibility. Don't take your prayer life lightly. My dad asked me this week, what did you think my condition really was? I said, do you really want to know? I said, I thought you were going to die and I was going to be doing your funeral by the end of the week. And that was the honest to God truth. I said, Dad, I stood there and I prayed over you every five minutes with my hand on your leg. And I said, God, it seems impossible, but you can make it happen because you're able. He doesn't do that for everyone and he won't do it for me always, but he did do it that time. I'm not some super Christian, but sense the presence of God in your right and your new responsibility to say, whether he slays us or not, I know he is able. The, the faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego was that they knew whether he saved them or didn't, he was able. You have a new right and a new responsibility to treat God as he truly is, the author, of create, the author and creator of everything. But what about your sense now of accountability? Do you see yourself as a member of the royal priesthood that Peter speaks about? Do you consider your personal accountability to be the rest of the priest, or to share with the rest of the priesthood in the worship and spirit, spiritual sacrifices offered to God? I tell my students all the time, when we, we start, I'll ask the question, and I, and I feel the freedom to do this because we're in a Christian school. Are you a Christian? And they'll all raise their hand, and I'll say, then how come our school isn't different? Some of you don't live like Christians. 
Better that you say I'm not a Christian than that you say I'm a Christian and not live like the priest you should offering spiritual sacrifices by your body as a living sacrifice. In other words, Jesus hates, as do I, the lukewarm Christianity and the lukewarm attitude, the neither hot nor cold. Which one are you? If you say you're a Christian, why aren't we living out these responsibilities in our life to be accountable to the rest of the priesthood, the rest of the body of Christ? It is not just my job as pastor to be righteous. It is all of ours. Paul said to Timothy, set for the believers an example in conduct and in speech, in doctrine. Why is he saying, what does it mean to set an example? It means to put your imprint like you struck it with a bat. You see these hippos right here? God knew I was going to use this illustration. You see these hippos right here? They've got my imprint in them. That's where my knee was on there. Sorry, Kathleen. There's imprints in there that I was there. My knees were there on this hippo. And you could measure it and see that I painted him. That that has me on him. Paul says to Peter, is your imprint on your people? Do your people live like you? That's my job as a preacher, as a pastor, and every other leader in this church to set the imprint. Your job is to ask, do I look like that? Am I living like a priest? Is your imprint of your leaders on you? Finally, what about your spiritual responsibility before God? What do you personally offer to God as acts of gratitude for what he has accomplished for you through the death of his son? Now, the new relationship with God is to stand in thankfulness and to say, I don't belong to myself anymore. You purchased me through your blood, the blood of your son, goats, heifers, none of those things cost you anything but your son, God. That cost you everything. Your own son, what can I give you in return? God, what is my responsibility today to live like a priest? Let's pray. God, thank you for what you did through your son a perfect priest of a perfect covenant. The old covenant failed because we failed. We could never keep it. But the new covenant succeeds because your son has purchased by his blood a new covenant and a new right. God, we just want to say first, thank you for what it cost you and for what you did. You have perfected us. The curtain upon the crucifixion, the curtain was torn in two. Through the body and through the sacrifice of your son, we now have access to you. Thank you for the right to live holy lives before you. But God, many of us are shirking this responsibility. Many of us have failed to be the kind of priest that offers our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to you. 
God, we wait for everyone else to be righteous when you are calling us right now through your word this very moment to be the righteousness of God and to offer spiritual sacrifices which are pleasing to you. God, I pray that you would motivate the hearts of every believer in here today to leave today asking the question, am I living like a priest? Am I living like someone who spiritual sacrifices to God? Challenge us. Make us complete. Sanctify us. Let us see a huge growth in the maturation of each and every believer's faith in this church. Let us see evidence that we are living like priests. Thank you, God, for what you've purchased for us. Thank you, Christ, that you are our perfect priest of a perfect covenant. Amen. Would you stand with us as we close in song?